I think there is. I think that there's still an outdated stigma of what it means to be the woman or the mother in the home um, and what it means to be the breadwinner. Um, if we think about uh, the stigma that's been around or the stereotypes that have been around of what the traditional American family looks like, it's okay. You see it reiterated in, in media and in movies and all of the other ways that we see stereotypes of, you know, the father or the man goes off to work and works all day and then comes home and is the provider and that's the only job. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Culture Crunch where we discuss everything company culture related. Today we're very fortunate to be joined by Corinne Canty, an executive coach, someone who's got over 20 years experience in the media and marketing space. Corinne, welcome to Culture Crunch. Hi. Um, so Corinne, we've obviously discussed company culture um, numerous times. So I'd like to begin by just asking you, in your own words, what is good company culture? Yeah, so I feel that good company culture is life-centered. And so we hear a lot of like people first and human first, and I am very much aligned with that. Um, but one thing that I've recognized over my many years of business is that all businesses are in service of life. Whether you're selling a product, whether you're giving a service, every business is in service of life, yet the people in the businesses usually end up last on the list. And so really looking at how do we create workplaces that have well-being at the center, knowing that if people are stressed out and overworked and miserable, that you're not going to get the full potential of the people, which means you'll never get full potential of your business. And you also won't keep people, especially now that we have moved beyond the feeling of like obligation to an employer and people are shifting into really wanting to live their lives. You mentioned earlier about uh, well-being in the workplace, which is something that I think is quite a popular topic of conversation now, especially within the, the, the company culture space. But in your opinion, what is well-being in the workplace? And, and are there any sort of tangible metrics that we can associate um, to that? Yeah. I think that um, there's a lot of kind of things that came up in the last 20 years of when we were mostly in the office of let's have fun and let's put these things within offices, um, calling it culture and saying it's well-being, though they never got utilized where you'd have like game rooms and ping pong tables and things that were designed to provide connection. When the real connection is how can I show up into the space as my whole self? How can mm -hmm. I feel okay sharing the things in my life that are important to me and being able to have the flexibility to tend to those things that are more important than work, though work usually is forced to be the first thing on the list. Um, if we want to believe that we can be successful, we're told that work comes first, even in the way that we would say work-life balance, work came first. And it was like, yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe you get some life at the end. But in reality, we need, to, we need to be able to integrate work into all the other 
kind of slices of our life pie. And how do mm. organizations start to recognize that the whole organization is made up of these people living these lives who choose to come and be a part of this organization to help foster the mission and foster the growth, but also want to foster their own mission in life and their own growth and yeah. the things that they really hold dear to themselves. Should we start a new movement, which is actually the life-work balance, and try and like change the narrative around that? You know, even with that, I've had that conversation before, and I feel like I feel like either way, you're keeping it separate. When really, it's all life. Like everything you do from the time you wake up till the time you go to sleep, and while you're sleeping, it's all life. So it's really just what's your life balance? Because work is always a piece of the pie. Um, for most of us, it's the biggest piece of the pie. But if you say life and work separately, you're saying they're two separate things, which is a fallacy because life is life. And there's many components to being, you know, a human that allows us to live well and to feel that whole life balance. Um, and I'm really excited about the fact that the Surgeon General even now has come out with a framework that supports this. Um, it's something that I think is long overdue. And it's something that I really hope that leaders and organizations take a deeper look at because it really is rooted in personal needs of well-being as a human and also um, the voice and equity that we need to feel meaningful and to drive the inclusivity that we know that we're still working towards in many of our, our industries. In terms of the U.S. Um, Surgeon General's report, which I read it and it really came across as a, as a manifesto for um, the, the workplace and, and um, all the permutations that come with that. What do you think it means for the, the, the hyper growth space in particular? So um, one of the things that I think happens a lot in hypergrowth organizations is uh, speed is, is a big factor. And so there's like rush to market, rush to like there's speed and you grow fast. So um, my visual is here you start your organization and you get more clients, more revenue, and you go up, up, up. Um, but how you do work kind of stays the same. And then there's this gap of pain that happens. Um, but we don't think about what it means for our people to be innovative and creative in the ways that we need to have sustainable growth. So we have these hyper growth situations where it's fun and it's great and then everyone starts to get burnt out and then the quality of work kind of goes down. Um, the well-being of people go down and then costs go up. We don't recognize that it actually hits your bottom line as an organization if you don't have a workforce of people who are well. There's healthcare costs, there's missing work, there's poor quality of work, there's just not being able to show up and produce the way that we want to. As humans, we want to do meaningful work. We want to achieve, we want to have accomplishments, but it's really hard to do that when our nervous system's out of whack because we're under so much stress. And going back to the, um, the US Surgeon General's report, why do you think this was so significant from a workplace culture perspective? Yeah, I think that one of the silver linings of the pandemic was there was almost this forced pause across so many different industries in so many different ways. And with this forced pause, people started 
recognizing the whirlwind they've been in. People started really examining their lives and having the threat and the high level of uncertainty happen globally on a scale that technology enables you to know what's going on. I mean, we've had, we've had health crises, so we've had pandemics in the past, but not at the level of the way that we communicate now and the visibility that we have. And it's very rarely that everyone's going through a crisis at once. So, you know, throughout your career, someone may have a tragedy, someone may have an illness, different people within in the work culture go through things, but we all were kind of in it together. We all had fear, we all had uncertainty, we had all of this heightened kind of level of, I don't know what's gonna happen and I need to reevaluate and I think starting to see what that created and how many people were leaving work and how many people didn't want to come back and how many people were starting to say, I'm going to work in this way continually once people wanted people to come back in the office. And it was just for us to have a productive society, like we need to have a society of people who are well. And I really keen to further unpack what you mentioned earlier about the, um, the pace and pain gap. I know we kind of, you started talking about it, but I, I really want to sort of learn more about that. Can you expand on, on exactly what that means? Yeah, so um, we tend to kind of think that we're machines. Uh, we operate still under a lot of the premises of the Industrial Revolution um, when it comes to shifts and hours. And so that's kind of the foundation of how we do work. And we haven't really changed that, even though now we have a lot of knowledge work happening um, as opposed to manual labor, which requires very different things. And so as we're building an organization and as it goes into hyper growth, as I was kind of talking about, you start and usually there's all hands on deck. We're building this thing, figure it out. We don't have a lot of processes yeah. in place. We don't have a lot of systems in place. It's like everybody, let's just go build. And then you take off and you start getting successful, but you don't stop to evaluate how, our, how we do work need to change. And so you're still operating in a mentality of not having the, the types of systems that are gonna be appropriate for scale and growth and sustainability. And you don't build in the pauses to even tap into what have you outgrown? Where is the pain getting more significant? How many times are we having to backtrack instead of move forward in the name of speed and growth by being afraid to take that pause to get a pulse on, are our people, do they have what they need? Are they getting burned out? Are we going to be able to service these clients as in 10X in an appropriate way? Or are we gonna constantly be in a state of dis-ease, which leads to disease in how we do our work? Why aren't we doing a better job at building in this time for pause, as you said, and, and time for reflection. Yeah, I think somewhere along the way, we've created this mindset of the grind is like a badge of honor. It's like, ah, sleep when I die, badge of honor, grind, I grind, I grind. And it got held up on a pedestal that that's the way to be successful. If I'm resting or I'm taking care of myself or I'm doing what I need to do, I'm lazy and I don't want it and I'm not successful. I have to be the one first in the office, last to go home, working on the weekends. 
that's, and then maybe later in life, I might actually get to have a life. And we've somehow built that into our mindset, not realizing that that threatens the even ability of having that later life and a good quality of life later on in life. But the same for the business. The business cannot be healthy if we're not also taking the time to understand what does it need if we're not taking the time to reflect, see how it's grown, see what the new needs are. And if you look at um, a business as an organism similar to the human body, like we can't run a marathon every day. Like our body just literally would stop working. I can't run a marathon any day. <laughs> but we, we tend to think that we can from a work perspective. And it's, and it's just not feasible. What I'm hearing, Corinne, is that subconsciously we're equating our value to almost how exhausted we are instead of equating our value to how impactful we are. Would, would you say that was correct? Yes. And we say that we're focused on outputs because the way that we measure is performance-based metrics. And so we're really looking at outputs but we're not actually realizing that we could have much greater outputs if we took the time to rest and restore. We'd have much more creativity. We'd have much more innovation and people would live better lives. And when you have people who are coming to work who feel good and are experiencing joy, then everything flourishes. So in terms of leaders, leaders in, well, I suppose any industry, but especially the tech space, what can leaders do to better pace for growth? I think one of the things that we all have to remember is that leadership starts with self. So I think the first thing is examining your mindset as a leader and what are you modeling? And what are you modeling versus the real outcomes that you want? And is the old ways that you've been conditioned that to get this outcome, I need someone to sit at a chain to a desk for 80 hours a week. Is that really what gets the outcome or is there a better way? And do you even enjoy the life you're living? If you're living that grind and you're sacrificing family and health, what do you think your teams are doing? Because you're the, you're the example, you're the model. So number one, start with self. And number two, as you go through your planning, as your annual planning, your strategic planning, being very intentional, intentional about looking at and understanding the cycles and season of your business. Everything is cyclical. Everything has a season. Everything has a cycle. And once you start to recognize your business and the cycle of your customers, how do you then strategically build in those periods of reflection and rest and restoration so you can come back and do better and be able to innovate more and be able to have a fresh workforce that's going to be able to understand your target audience better. It's going to be able to connect better and going to be able to build better products. Okay. Do you also think that having some data around, around this would almost help leaders in understanding the impact because at the moment you know especially in the tech space we are a data-driven industry but we've got i don't feel that we've got enough data when it comes to the people strategy element of it so do you think more could be done to really assess and understand the importance um, 
for having um, that time to pause and that time to reflect from a, from a metric perspective? Do you think that would be helpful? I do. And I think um, by learning how to focus a little bit more on lead measures and not just performance metrics like lag measures, starting to tap into and having measurements of the pulse of your people and how are they feeling and are they getting the flexibility that they need and leaning on the new framework from the Surgeon General to have the different elements of the framework to be a guide. So we start to standardize it a little bit and we start to understand like what are the real needs. Um, one of my big philosophies is the more important metric is return on being because returning on being is what leads to a return on investment. And so how do you start looking at your organization and finding ways to understand how are you protecting from harm? How are you creating opportunities for growth? How are you creating the connection in the community where people really have the feeling of belonging and the psychological safety they need to show up in their whole selves, to share the ideas that they have? Because many times your workforce has these brilliant ideas, but they don't feel safe enough to share them and they don't feel like they matter. And they don't feel like they can speak up about what they need in their life and be able to have the flexibility to give you their best because they have other things that also need their attention. That's really interesting. And I think that concept of having that standardized level from a, um, uh, you know, from a, from a culture perspective and an engagement perspective. I mean, I, I don't think, we can get there tomorrow but I think by moving in that direction it's certainly going to propel forward good company culture because obviously that impacts everything from employee well-being to business productivity as well so perhaps leaders can look to that standardized system um, sooner rather than later. Yes and also I, I was going to say the other thing is lots of times as leaders we take it on and like, okay, I have to create this thing. I have to figure out this model. And then I have to give it to the people where what really needs to happen is leaders need to learn how to listen to their people, invite them in, ask them to help you build this, invite them to understand the framework and start to understand what are the real needs of your workforce. They will tell you, they know. And it's just creating the space to get that feedback in a safe way. So that collaboration is absolutely integral as opposed to just implementing it top down in your yes. opinion. Yes, I think that is key. And I think that that's the only way to build the type of culture that many people are looking to build. Okay, now we're talking about company culture and a lot of the examples provided and um, the parameters of the conversation are post pandemic. Because obviously it has shaped everything in such a in such a tangible um, way. I'd like to talk to you about um, carers, in, individuals who are caregivers whilst also um, working. Right, so they're contributing to a, a working environment, um, but then also they have the additional responsibility of being a caretaker. This is something that I, I haven't heard being discussed and, and I think it's really you know, important and I know um, this is something that you're very passionate about. So could you share with me please your thoughts on, um, 
But I suppose to begin with the challenges of being a carer and the impact this has on um, company culture in the post-pandemic landscape. Yes, yes. I'm very passionate about it and I have a lot of experience with it. I've spent my career as a single mother raising my children, so I have the experience of the days of having to go pick up my child from daycare and taking them back to the office and all of the different challenges you face from a parenting perspective, which a lot of that um, surfaced more during the pandemic when the kids didn't go to school and how stressful that could be for a lot of parents. Um, but, but even beyond that, there's not a lot of talk of the other end of the spectrum when we have so many people now having to be caretakers of aging parents or family members with disabilities or things that aren't necessarily as visible or as commonplace being spoken about as being parents of young children. But I think even on top of that, one of the things that started to surface a little bit more during the pandemic and personally in my life with a lot of leaders that I worked with is the stigma, not only that the mom has double duty, which we hear a lot, but what that also does um, in, in traditional families where uh, a man may be going to work and has primary caretaking responsibilities and the expectation that there's someone else to do that, that you're not supposed to be the one to leave and pick up the children, that you're not supposed to be, you're supposed to always be able to be available and be on. And I've seen so many instances and I've coached a lot of executives that that was a really hard thing. And sometimes they felt like they had to walk, they had to walk away completely themselves because they did not have any grace in the fact that I may be the one who's doing this in my household and this is how our house um, is set up. Do you think there's a stigma attached to men that are caretakers? I think there is. I think that there's still an outdated stigma of what it means to be the woman or the mother in the home. Um, and what it means to be the breadwinner. Um, if we think about uh, the stigma that's been around or the stereotypes that have been around of what the traditional American family looks like. It's okay. You see it reiterated in, in media and in movies and all of the other ways that we see stereotypes of, you know, the father or the man goes off to work and works all day and then comes home and it's the provider and that's the only job. Do you think that from a communication perspective, employers can do more to, I suppose, support or facilitate um, individuals that are caretakers? I think, number one, it's first making sure that you have policies that are very inclusive and understanding that everyone at some point in their life may have to be a caretaker or may have responsibilities in their home that they need to have the flexibility and the agility for. Um, I think some policies are very still based in gender biases, um, which need to be removed, but then also doing the work to understand the bias that actually exists and like, what are you as a leader putting forth in your bias? And how are you maybe not consciously perpetuating this bias and making it difficult for the people in your organization to show up as their whole selves, to live well, to be able to have the flexibility to where they can do their best work, to where they can be their most productive because the situations where they are forced to try to find a way around of the, the needs of their life 
means that their level of stress is not giving you their best work. And do you feel like we've come, we've progressed in, let's say, the last year or two years? Like in your experience, from the conversations that you're having, um, you know, you mentioned earlier that you were speaking with a lot of executives who actually some of them felt they had to walk away from um, from from their employer because they just weren't able to align their professional responsibilities with the personal caregiving responsibilities. Do you think that we're on the right track or that we're progressing even at a somewhat glacial pace or or do you think there's actually been no improvement in your opinion? I think um, there's a few different ways that we are progressing. I think number one that the mindset of the individuals is progressing faster than the organizations. And that's going to force organizations to progress more or lose. And so there are some organizations out there that are doing really great things and doing really great policies and are modeling the behavior of what it's like to build a life-centered, you know, well-being focused culture. And then there are organizations who are still holding on to old values and beliefs and trying to force employees that there's only one way to do work and be grateful for your job. And people are saying no, and they're walking away. We no longer live in the time of loyalty to your employer at all costs. Get one role and have it until you retire. And that's not our modern way of working. And even more and more, we're moving away from full-time W-2 roles and shifting to more of a flex talent type of model. So I think that the change is starting to happen, but it's coming more from the power shift to the employees. Um, You mentioned something earlier, um, Corinne, the well-being focused culture, which is, that really resonated. I think that's a really fresh outlook on good company culture because it's, whether it's something good or bad, I suppose that's quite subjective. Um, because what I enjoy, you might not, and vice versa. But actually, a, a culture that's got well-being at the centre of it can't really go wrong for, for the different types of employees that it's trying to support. Um, so I'm, you know, mindful of time. As always, time has flown when speaking to you, Corinne. But if you, you know, if you were to send a message out to employees, especially within the tech space, how, what they can do, you know, what tangible steps they can do today, tomorrow, to help really propel forward that idea of a well-being focused culture, what would you say to them? Yeah, the first step I would do is say, get a pulse from your people. Get a pulse from your people and ask real questions about how they can show up to work and live their full lives or where they're struggling. Ask them what can, what could they use more or less of? Get a pulse from them and start building your strategy based on who's actually building your business. Um, I think that's a really uh, clear call to action. And actually I love how proactive that means that leaders have to be as opposed to just putting in some policies, sitting back and hoping that a good company culture is cultivated. It's actually what proactively needs to happen and what needs to be done in order for that well-being focused culture to to, to be born and then to thrive. Um, 
Karina, I just wanted to thank you so much for your time. Um, I feel like we've covered a lot of different things from um, well-being in the workplace to the, from the you know, US Surgeon General's report to the pain and pace gap, how leaders can really um, pace for growth, and of course, the challenges of being a carer and what employee, employers can really do to support them in a, in a very active and tangible way. Um, and I think your... Uh, your, your, your last point about employers really getting a pulse from their people, I think, transcends all sector parameters and uh, it, it is, is, is a really clear call to action. Um, so, again, thank you very much for your time. Uh, as always, I found our talks incredibly informative and insightful. And uh, I hope you'll be back uh, to discuss more things company culture related in the not too distant future. Guys, if you've enjoyed uh, today's episode of The Culture Crunch and you're keen to see more, please hit the subscribe button on all of our socials and keep up to date with all of our conversations here on Culture Crunch. Take care. Bye-bye.